Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 100, The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It's kind of weird that I'm so many installments into the origins of the Soviet Union, but haven't really been able to refer to it as such, since that name took years to be adopted. Well, that changes today, as we have finally, finally reached the point where we get to cover the formation of what became the key nemesis of European fascism. Up to the end of 1922, the vast dominion under the control of Moscow was, as everything else in the emerging state, an ad hoc arrangement. The core of everything was the Russian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, which even its acronym, RSFSR, is kind of a mouthful, so I've been leaving the term alone. But this state wasn't the extent of the Bolsheviks' control, even though the frontier zones of Belarusia, Ukraine, the Caucasus, and Central Asia were all outside the RSFSR's official borders. Those territories, which had at various times fallen away from what had been the Tsarist Empire, were by 1922 controlled by the communists, and a number of local republics had been set up. The presence of separate Soviet republics built on the Russian model but not formally united on paper sparked a fierce debate within the highest levels of the Bolshevik leadership. These republics were being treated with a degree of equality that might surprise the modern listener. They were bound to the RSFSR by treaties of allegiance and friendship, but again, at least on paper, kept up their own administrations and even their own foreign relations. In early communist embassies, they often took on the appearance of condominiums for all the Soviet republics, not just the Russian one. This was most true for Ukraine, which maintained relations with nations across Central Europe and whose citizens did not automatically share citizenship with the neighboring Russian Republic. If this sounds a little unwieldy, or perhaps a little too loose arrangement for the Bolsheviks, you would be correct. There were, though, two schools of thought when it came to how to work with the outlying republics, although both saw the need for all the entities to be grouped into one superstate. The first was the approach advocated by Lenin, which called for the republics to be welcomed into a federative state with a lot of leeway for self-governance, which, after all these episodes covering Bolshevik Russia and what you might already know of the Soviet state, that sounds a little too good to be true. But you could look at it in a couple of ways. Lenin himself professed that part of what made the Tsarist Empire so unworkable was that it didn't allow its constituent minorities a fair say in their own affairs. Which was entirely true. The empire hadn't been able to effectively marshal the resources of the non-Russians without provoking some kind of resistance, either based on nationalism or some other source of regional identity. And it had been that lack of engagement which caused huge chunks of the empire to simply break off when the going got bad. Lenin's remedy to Great Russian Chauvinism was to create a society where the other ethnic and cultural groups were encouraged and elevated into positions of leadership, not only to make them happy, but to give them a stake in the new nation to come. Don't sell out, buy in, that kind of thing. And then there was the propaganda value of such an arrangement. In Lenin's eyes, the revolution might have been momentarily contained, but it would not remain so. A federative and looser Soviet Union would show other nations that if they turned to communism, then they could expect to maintain their identities in the larger community. The idea was that future communist states wouldn't just remain separate, they too would join the Soviet Union as member republics. 
And if the first constituent republics that would form the Soviet Union were treated as equal partners and not just subjects, that would send a powerful message abroad. So the viewpoint had practical and propaganda value. But Lenin's idealism was opposed by those who took a more realist perspective, and they were led by Joseph Stalin. For different reasons, his stance was both surprising and unsurprising. It's surprising in that Stalin usually went along with Lenin's decisions. On controversial issues like Brest-Litovsk and the adoption of the NEP, Stalin had been a consistent supporter of Lenin among the leadership. But this is where Stalin decided to clash with his boss and really dig in. And Stalin being Stalin, it's unsurprising that he advocated for a far more tight-knit union, with Moscow and the Communist Party of Russia taking the leading role. Stalin was a Georgian, which meant that he himself hailed from an ethnic minority from the fringes of the empire and had an outsider's stake in how things operated there. Keep in mind that Lenin's upbringing was entirely within the core of Russia, and then most of his life was spent with the like-minded. He might have been a genius, but he wasn't as experienced with the peoples he was trying to raise up. Stalin, on the other hand, took a much dimmer view of his own people's enthusiasm for the new state, as well as that from the other minorities. From his point of view, the minorities would use their enhanced positions within the coming union to sow discord and disrupt the march towards communism by constantly putting their own local interests above that of the combined state. And from his own experience among his people, he assumed the republics would naturally work to drift away from the union and go their own ways, which would fatally divide the movement and lead to the dissolution of the entire project. And he hadn't been quiet about that viewpoint either. Early on in 1918, he had been put in charge of figuring out what to do about the menagerie of nations in the former empire, and his conclusions had always been consistent. Stalin reported in June 1920 that the various peoples had either never possessed a true nation or had lost theirs for generations, if not centuries. These regions were not naturally set up for truly independent government. And Stalin attacked Lenin's position with the spicy assertion that to allow Soviet republics to operate autonomously along the nationalist lines, well, that just defied communist orthodoxy of attacking such distinctions. In the Soviet Union, a Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, Cossack, what have you, would all be equal in the state with equal responsibilities to the single unifying government. Nationality could not be a factor. Plus, the outlying republics were already in the thrall of the Russian Communist Party. To divide them into more distinct and autonomous units would require a whole new political project, one that could not immediately offer tangible benefit over simply continuing Moscow's dominance. Stalin also was not terribly interested in the propaganda angle of Lenin's argument either. He had seen socialist and communist attempts at government fail in places like Germany, Italy, and Hungary, plus was on the scene to experience the Poles resisting tooth and nail. He did not believe that under even the most well-meaning and genuine circumstances that the nations of Europe would submit themselves willingly to a Soviet superstate. He declared at the 10th Party Congress in March 1921, the same panicked one where Lenin drove through the NEP, that the system of treaties binding the Soviet republics together was exhausted and an integrated approach was required. This predictably came under fire, as the Congress was well attended by the non-Russian branches, and they demanded that a second report be made. 
The Armenian-Polish Georgi Safarov, Ukrainian Mykola Skripnik, and the Armenian Anastasi Mikoyan all rallied to try and get the Congress to pursue a hands-off approach to the borderlands, arguing that a centralized approach would fail to address local class structures and turn the state into an overbearing enemy. But Stalin countered that the development of regional cultures would best be handled from above, and put it bluntly that the smaller republics would only be able to fend off imperialist influences and advance the communist cause within a tighter union. The Congress opted to endorse Stalin's approach and set up a commission to decide how best to bring the republics into the fold. Stalin would ironically face the most trouble in pushing his approach from his homeland of Georgia, which he admittedly had already seen coming and was a key basis of his preference towards centralization. By a medical coincidence, he would find himself down in the Caucasus very shortly after the 10th Congress. Stalin was suffering from ill health in general and also had to have his appendix removed in March 1921, which led his fellows on the Politburo to order him to get a spa treatment in the North Caucasus town of Nalchik, just across the mountains from Georgia which meant he was out of Moscow and down south for pretty much the whole spring and summer of 1921. To check in on Stalin and report on his health was Sergo Orjanikidze, a fellow Georgian and important lieutenant of his in later years. His name will be worth remembering. He had been a leading Bolshevik in the Caucasus and was now de facto their leader in Georgia, and like Stalin, held a very suspicious view of Georgian nationalism, and advocated for centralized control, lest the borderlands break away yet again. Remember that Georgia was also dominated by Mensheviks, which was an alarm bell for both of them. Orjanikidze called upon Stalin and asked if he was feeling well enough to cross the mountains and use his clout to help convince the proletariat there to listen to reason and accept the Bolsheviks. Stalin agreed and went to the capital of Tiflis at the start of July. His stay didn't go well. On the 5th, he tried to address a workers' assembly, but got shouted down by boos and jeers. Turns out his fellow Georgians, even the Marxist ones, didn't appreciate him throwing in with Moscow and called him a traitor. Stalin responded by sicking the local Cheka on them and arrested more than 100 Mensheviks the next day in retaliation. He also used his personal authority to make replacements in local party leadership and charged them with stamping out nationalism in the region at all costs. Stalin was already a centralizer by nature, and now he had been given a fresh, first-hand experience with the problem of nationalism in the borderlands, which really wasn't going to work out for them and would help define Stalin's later policies as ruler of the Soviet Union. The famine crisis of 1921 slowed the debate over the republics, but by early 1922, the issue was put at the forefront yet again. And it really flared up after March 1922, when Orjana finally got Moscow's approval to merge the Soviet republics of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan into a Transcaucasian republic. With no one of the three nationalities dominating the republic-level government, the threat of nationalism was considered to be reduced. It also meant that territorial disputes between the three were now settled, seeing as they now all shared the same borders. This, however, enraged everyone actually living there, and the Georgians especially. They had managed to receive international recognition for their independence before the Bolsheviks had shown up, and moreover had functioned well under a Menshevik government. One that, while deposed, still carried with it the support of the people. 
Keep in mind that this is all happening under a backdrop of a guerrilla war in Georgia that the Red Army was furiously trying to put down. Lenin at first supported Orzhanikidze's efforts throughout most of 1922, seeing him as a local Bolshevik and therefore someone to defer to on local questions. Plus, he knew full well that the Georgian branch of the Communist Party was well-staffed by former Mensheviks and probably held some distrust about their concerns. With Moscow unwilling to go against Orzhanikidze, Georgia's communists fell further into chaos. Orzhanikidze might have been the most prominent leader, and several other local Bolsheviks favored by the Politburo were on his side, but the Central Committee of the Georgian Communist Party was in the majority against him. On August 10th, 1922, the Politburo opted to set up a commission about integrating the Transcaucasus, Ukraine, and Belarusia directly into Russia and end the Republic debate once and for all. This once again pitted Lenin against Stalin, and while Lenin wasn't willing to make a breach in the party, he still wanted a looser structure than what Stalin was advocating for. By mid-1922, though, Stalin was getting increasingly bolder, which was almost certainly a result of Lenin's failing health and inability to be as involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of government, which Lenin still made every effort to participate in those affairs, but ironically it only helped make his health all the worse. His increasingly poor health would lead to the battle over the nature of the Soviet Union to be Lenin's last. He had been complaining of headaches, blackouts, and exhaustion since 1921, and had likely been suffering from an earlier date. On a hunting trip in the midst of the Civil War, he had collapsed and, while still conscious, couldn't move. On the eve of the Tenth Party Congress, and amidst the mass revolts afflicting his state right as the Civil War was dying down, he said that his nerves were shot. In August 1921, the Politburo forced him to take a month break and try and save his health. But when he came back in September, he was still physically incapable of operating at 100%. October brought more blackouts, and in December 1921, the Politburo forced him on another six-week break. He was allowed only an hour a day on the phone to discuss government business with Moscow while he was out of town. Doctors suspected the two bullets still lodged in his body after the 1918 assassination attempt were the root cause. One was stuck in his neck, another in his collarbone. As I mentioned last week, Lenin's behavior had gotten distinctly more brutal since that assassination attempt. And while that brutal turn might also be explained by the aforementioned stress of holding the revolution together, the trauma of almost being gunned down might have shifted his personality all by itself. Some have conjectured that his body's overall breakdown was a result of hereditary illness passed down from his father, who died at a similar age of a brain hemorrhage. Lenin's health did not improve in early 1922, and it wasn't long after returning to Moscow in mid-January that he returned to the countryside yet again. On March 1st, he dragged himself back to the capital, and people close to him reported a loss of speech and complaints of not being able to feel his right side. Lenin himself believed he was dying. He hadn't exactly been laying the groundwork to pick out a successor to his position as the first among equals, but he was empowering someone to the point where that became an inevitability. When Stalin returned from his southern convalescence at the end of summer 1921, Lenin made him a secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. That position had three spots, so Stalin wasn't the only one, but he was the one who started handling the Politburo's agenda and oversaw appointments in the party as a whole. 
and an even more sickly Lenin elevated Stalin still more during the 11th Party Congress in late March, early April 1922. On April 3rd, with the formal backing of the party, Stalin was made its general secretary. Lenin was still in command of the Sovnarkom, and by sheer prestige, still commanded Stalin. But the new general secretary was afforded enormous power over the Communist Party itself, which was important because the party was embedded into the entire apparatus of the state. Important appointments would be filled by party men, who would then carry out party policy. And Stalin now controlled who went where, something he put to immediate use. The majority of the 10,000 provincial appointments made in 1922 alone went through Stalin, and that would be his base in the 20s, as he claimed first the party and then the entire nation. This went without comment at the time, as he was seen as devoutly loyal to Lenin, who, while ill, was also not perceived by most as being on death's door. Stalin also hadn't yet revealed his capacity to murder every single human being around him either. Lenin was checked out by specialists brought into the country, and on May 19th, he underwent surgery to have the neck bullet removed. This was a success, and Lenin was in good spirits. But while recuperating the countryside, on the night of May 26th, he suffered a major stroke. This, to say the least, came at a bad time. Stalin had just been appointed general secretary, and Lenin was incapacitated on his estate outside the town of Gorky, in the thick forest that surrounded Moscow. Remember, Lenin was not a man who was easy to get along with and had no real friends. His only close intimates on the estate were his sister and his wife. This left the Politburo in a kind of limbo, as nobody was replacing Lenin, yet they still had to continue on without him. Stalin was the one who visited the boss the most and genuinely tried to boost his spirits, although also he was timing his trips with Politburo meetings so that shortly after he would go back to the capital and then emphasize to the rest of the group that he had been in contact with Lenin and knew what his wishes were. As you might imagine, the visits from Joseph Stalin might not have entirely lifted the morale of the partially paralyzed Lenin, who requested that his subordinate bring him a cyanide capsule so that he could off himself and put an end to his misery. Part of the reason why Orjanikidze was able to get away with his centralizing schemes down in the Caucasus was that Lenin was personally in no position to intervene or investigate the matter further. But in July, Lenin's health began to turn around, and suddenly he was walking around like everything was normal, being able to greet Stalin warmly on one of his periodic visits. It was in the second half of 1922 that Lenin took up the task of trying to hash out how the national government would look going into the future. As I mentioned earlier, he was still in charge of the Subnarkum, the Council of Commissars that was effectively the government cabinet that ran Soviet Russia. His intent was for that body to be the more powerful one in the country's administration, which was not how things were shaping out given how influential the Communist Party had become. As a measure to curtail Stalin's power and bring Trotsky back into the fold as a counter, Lenin wanted the latter made his deputy in the Subnarkum. Trotsky, by this point, was in a precarious spot. He carried the prestige of basically having won the Civil War, but his own distaste for politicking and his own brusque manner had left him without many allies. Plus, he appeared every bit the intellectual type, which is to say, a gigantic nerd which, even with his wartime bona fides known to all, meant that the rank and file found it difficult to follow him. 
He was isolated in the Politburo as Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev had made themselves into a triumvirate to shut him down and manage that body as they saw fit. Lenin's apparent plan was to bring Trotsky away from the party and instead make use of his organizational talents in the government itself, which might have had a chance of counterbalancing Stalin. Keep in mind, it wasn't Lenin's intent to replace Stalin here, just keep him in check a little bit. Lenin's real disillusion with his closest subordinate would only come later. In any case, Lenin's intent failed. Trotsky refused the appointment, seeing the deputy position as just an excuse to make him Lenin's whipping boy, and also keeping him away from the offices that ran the economy that Trotsky really wanted. Stalin had been fully supportive of Trotsky's appointment, as it would have meant he'd be shuffled off onto the increasingly subordinate Subnarkum, but Trotsky's refusal of an ostensibly prestigious appointment was useful too, in that it made him look greedy and obstructionist. That was also the difference between Trotsky and Stalin. Trotsky simply could not work in a situation he could not dominate himself, while Stalin was the master of team management. This meant as Lenin gradually ran out of time, Trotsky wasn't in any position to mount a real challenge. And Trotsky was the only one capable of challenging Stalin. A crisis in the leadership broke out when matters in Georgia finally came to a head. Internal party meetings down there had grown so heated that one member who opposed Orjana Kinza called him a Stalinist ass, which provoked him into attacking the man. Word of the incident made its way back to Lenin, and on October 22, 1922, the entire Central Committee of the Georgian Communist Party resigned in protest of Orjanikidze's policies and behavior. Lenin, who had defended Orjanikidze's decisions up to this point, was beside himself with rage. Despite all the violence the Bolsheviks had unleashed in the past five years, it was simply unacceptable to him for party members to attack each other like that. Stalin proactively sent Zerzhinsky to investigate what had happened, but Iron Felix was an ally of Stalin's and sent back a report that the whole incident was a big nothing and shouldn't be worried about. Lenin wasn't fooled and started perceiving Stalin as the domineering monster he definitely was. Too bad for Lenin, his health was failing once again. He got worse all through November 1922, and then finally on December 15th, suffered his second stroke. He was confined to a wheelchair and effectively became Stalin's prisoner, as the general secretary obtained permission from the Central Committee to keep Lenin in isolation so that he couldn't overwork himself. Which, coming from someone less nefarious, would have been a good thing as Lenin was very much a workaholic. Lenin once again requested poison with which to kill himself, and once again, Stalin refused. This left Lenin sidelined as the final arrangements were made to create the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In the end, the new state would follow Stalin's vision, and the founding republics of Russia, Belarusia, Ukraine, and the Transcaucasus were subordinated to central authority. The new nation's legislature would be a national congress of Soviets led by the Central Executive Committee of the Soviet Union. It would be led by Mikhail Kalenin and was the newest evolution of the National Soviet. It would continue to be composed of representatives sent from local Soviets, so not much change there. And while on paper it was the supreme legislature, it was just as defanged as the National Soviet that it had just replaced. The Subnarkum was also carried over, with no real changes made and its appointments made through the Congress of Soviets, which, again, 
all those bodies were ultimately controlled by the party, which was coming under the grip of Stalin. So you can see where this is going. There were voiced concerns that the party's supremacy was terribly redundant and also downright confusing, given that its stated power was just to set policy. Not to set specific rules, not to make decrees, not to take any actions, just general guidelines. It had been Lenin's wish that the Subnarkum would be the most powerful of the leadership bodies in the new state, but the party's power of appointment was too irresistible. Part of why that came about, too, was because Lenin himself grew detached from party business as he concerned himself with securing Bolshevik Russia. He confessed to Stalin back in 1921 that he didn't really have any idea what the party had grown into, and his unease was shared by many old Bolsheviks who claimed to not be able to recognize the party anymore. But despite the concerns, its powers weren't going anywhere. But the deed was finally done, and on December 30th, 1922, the Soviet Union was born. And for our purposes, it is important to note that it was definitely Stalin's conception of the nation that had won out, a fact that would only become more inescapable as time progressed. Because while everyone acknowledged that Lenin had been their leader, they assumed that as his death approached, that the old Bolsheviks would rule together by committee. After all, they had been through the thick of it together, and it wasn't immediately obvious there was one among them that held all the levers of power. The Soviet Union was centralized, yes, but not centralized under one man. Surely not. Stalin would defy their expectations. Lenin, in as bad shape as he was, recognized what was about to happen. He was of the belief that no one man on the Politburo could properly lead the Soviet Union, and that Stalin should be removed as general secretary. But while Lenin might have thought that, he was stuck in the woods at Gorky, at the mercy of doctors under orders to keep him constantly at rest. This time, he wouldn't be making a comeback. On March 5, 1923, his wife Dadajda received a phone call from Stalin. Lenin had had her deliver a congratulatory note to Trotsky about his success in a recent leadership debate, and it had been reported to Stalin, who did not take the well wishes to his rival very well. Despite only being the messenger, Stalin chewed Adajda out. When Lenin found out about that, he used his limited telephone time to ring up Stalin and demand an apology. Stalin claimed the incident was overblown and wasn't a huge deal, but he'd be sorry for the sake of good relations between them. Lenin was unnerved by the conversation and the high-handedness that Stalin treated him with. His doctors noted that afterwards his mood was terribly upset, and a few days later on March 9th, he suffered his third stroke. This time, he lost his ability to speak and walk, and while over the next 10 months he regained some ability to walk and also to write with one of his hands, he was no longer a factor in politics. Except for the little matter of his testament, a controversial document claiming to be his final say on the Soviet Union's politics, including his opinion on what should be done about Stalin, it was probably not taken down all at once, and there are disputes as to if Lenin wrote all or any of it. Still, it's a fun little time bomb to look forward to. Lenin himself would hang on until January 21st, 1924, but the revolutionary state that he had given everything to was already moving on without him. But all this talk of high-level power politics glosses over the common masses of the new Soviet Union. What did they believe? How did they live? And how did they respond to the new ideas they found themselves dominated by? Next week, I'm going to shift focus and begin to take a look at life in the first aspirational communist nation. 
So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.